Joshua chapter 24, starting from verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw, that, you saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I will not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his land. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. <coughs> Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up, up out of Egypt, from that land of slavery, and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed them for, 
he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there, set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. Good morning. It's been uh, lovely to be here with you guys over the last few weeks. Uh, This is my third week here uh, on Sunday mornings, and I got to be with the congregation at Gordon uh, for their last service, and that was a privilege as well. I think the thing I've been enjoying most over the last few weeks is not so much the invitation to come and uh, bring the word as much as actually getting to know some of you a bit better before and after the service. The conversations I've had with some of you have just been delightful, and uh, it's really nice to connect with you in that way. So it's been a real pleasure. Uh, today, uh, I have with me most of my family. My youngest child isn't here because he's not too well, but the rest of my family is at the back. And guys, just to embarrass you, can I ask you to stand up for one minute, please? <laughs> Thank you. So that, that's the Fortune family. Yeah, well done. <laughs> yep, so that's the family uh, for Sean, uh, is the way our name should be said, or as close to it as I can get, for Sean. So I don't know what you thought when you heard that David Foshon was coming to speak to you and that my family, the Foshon family, are here today. Uh, but I guess when you hear that name, that family name being said, um, it probably doesn't sound like we're Indigenous Australians, that we've been here for a long time, correct? <laughs> you wouldn't guess that, would you? No. Um, can anybody have a bit of a guess where that family name might come from? Sing it out when you know, if you think you know. Fauchon. Where might that come from? French. French. Thank you. Yes. It is a French surname. And so um, I'm wanting to say that to you today because uh, there's a backstory to the Fauchon family. We haven't been here for centuries. We haven't been here for millennia. We've actually been here quite a short time, even though myself and my family were all born here and my parents were born here in Australia. My grandfather on the Fortune side, which is how we say it here in Australia, terrible, but Fortune, uh, my, gra- my grandfather came here when he was three years old and he was brought here by his family from England. Uh, So uh, that was in the beginning of the 20th century, 1900 and something. Uh, They came from Kent in in England, where they were farmers and came out here to do farming. And then, what's the link then between England and France? Well, uh, a bit over 100 years before that, they were living in France, our family, and left, they were Huguenots, or Huguenots, I don't know if you know that term, but they were the Protestant uh, form of the church uh, Christians in France at the time, and they were persecuted uh, strongly by the Catholic government in France for, for a long time, for a couple of centuries. And it was right at the end of that, when they were getting their independence, their equal rights, that my family left France and went to be in England. Now, I'm guessing, guys, that there's not many people sitting here today that are Indigenous Australians. There might be one or two, but not many. So I'm thinking you've probably got a backstory as well. 
that your being here in Australia, sitting here in this church this morning, has a backstory. Maybe you were born here. Maybe your parents were born here. And maybe not. Somewhere along the line, you have a backstory that goes to a different place. And I want to encourage us as we look at Joshua chapter 24 this morning, that these guys come to this point in this book of the Bible with a backstory. They weren't indigenous to the place they were. We've been looking at some of the backstory, but they were coming in from outside and were settling here. And I think that gives us the setting for this incredible speech that we've just heard read for us from Joshua 24. And we're going to look in that in a minute. But why don't we pray as we get started? Father, I just um, ask that as we come and consider Joshua chapter 24, that you would encourage our hearts. Help us to hear what you want us to hear from this message. And um, we pray that you would uh, guide my thoughts and minds as I speak on what you've prepared. And we pray that we would have hearts open to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Joshua chapter 24, I want to say quickly, right up front, essentially, essentially Joshua 24 is a monumental, monumental speech uh, with a purpose and the purpose of calling the Israelites to yield their hearts to the Lord a speech about calling the Israelites to yield their hearts to the Lord and that came out of verse 23 so can I just ask you what the purpose of this speech was to yield our hearts to the Lord for you and for me and for the Israelites Um, Yield your hearts to the Lord is what it says in verse 23, the second half of it. And if you take anything away from today, that's what I want you to take out of today, that we are to yield our hearts to the Lord. It is the call of this speech to the Israelites in Joshua 24 in its context at the time. And it's also the call of this speech to us today as we come to the end of a year. We've been focusing on that. We're coming to a new year. And the call to us from this passage, from this book, is to yield our hearts to the Lord. Well, if this is a speech, and I think a speech that if it wasn't in the Bible, we'd be a lot poorer for it. I think it's a very important passage of the Bible. And the setting of it is in this monumental speech that Joshua gives to the Israelites. come to mind when I talk about monumental speeches, what are some of the monumental speeches that come to mind in modern history or current times? Again, feel free to sing out. We're going to be a bit casual here this morning. Any monumental speeches you can think of in modern history? Doesn't have to be Australian, doesn't have to be American, can be anywhere. I have a dream. I have a dream. Who 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 had that one? Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Yep. Any others? Historic speech. The sorry speech by Kevin Rudd. Yeah. Thank you to the Indigenous people of Australia. Any others?
I'm getting you to do some work today, guys. So I hope you have Joshua 24 open because you're going to be doing some work there as well. <laughs> That'll do. There's a couple, but there's lots, right? There's lots of political figures, lots of entertainers, lots of um, uh, pastors and ministers that have given monumental speeches. Let's look at that first one that we were given, um, which is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. His speech, I Have a Dream, is very famous, and it was made in 1963, and it's actually seared into our consciousnesses, into our consciousness, isn't it? Um, he, like Joshua, actually chose the location for his speech very carefully. And there are commentators who actually say he had given parts of this speech on other occasions before the occasion that we know about. In fact, he'd even given a segment of the I Have a Dream passage at another time before he gave the televised speech that we know about. Never before giving that televised speech did he do so in such an important location. Washington, D.C., the political capital of America. And not only was he in Washington, D.C., alongside him was the monument you can see in this picture um, of Abraham Lincoln, one of the previous presidents of the United States. And this really was a stroke of genius for getting his message across to the people because there was a not-so-subtle message by being next to the monument of Abraham Lincoln that people realised that a 100 years before he gave this speech, President Lincoln was had announced that the Emancipation Proclamation, which means the Freedom Proclamation, was there to free people from slavery. It was tied up with the Freedom from Slavery movement. However, when, when Martin Luther King was giving the speech about social equality, there was still informal racial segregation in the United States and inequality still existed. So the location of the speech spoke volumes along with the actual verbal message he had about, I have a dream of people being free. Well, not only was Abraham Lincoln instrumental in that, but he also lost his life as someone who was instrumental in the anti-slavery movement in America. He was martyred for having those views. And as we know from history, so did Dr. Martin Luther King lose his life in that battle. But the message was strong and powerful and effective and built because of the sentiment of being next to such an incredible monument in such an incredibly powerful city, the capital of one of the biggest superpowers of the world. And it sent that message that people of that day were still being harassed because of their racial, their racial background. Well, I want to say to us today that the message and, the, and the, the speech that we heard read out for us today also happened in a very important location. You'll see in verse chapter 1 of Joshua 24 that Joshua called the Israelites to Shechem. Now, I don't know about you, but I've probably read over that many, many times, and it's just a place, and it didn't mean a lot to me, 
But it turns out that Shechem is a very, very significant place. It's where Abraham first entered when God called him out of of his father's land, of Chur of the Alde- Ur of the Chaldeans, where his father worshipped other gods, and God called him out of there and promised him a land of his own. He left, and the first place he came to was Shechem. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And that's all back in Genesis chapter 12, 6, very early on in the Bible. But it was, it was important through the decades and it was important through the centuries because Jacob, the grandson of Abram, also returned to Shechem after he had been in Padan Aram. And he also built an altar to the Lord right there at Shechem. And that's from Genesis 33. Jacob dug a well there at Shechem where the speech was made that we heard read today. And Shechem is also where Jacob sent his 17-year-old son Joseph to go and check on his brothers that were tending the sheep before he was sold into slavery by his brothers and ended up in Egypt. And at the end of Joseph's life in Egypt, after 50 years in Egypt, when he was coming to the end of his life, he had a he, he knew, he had an inkling that the family was going to end up back in Shechem. So he asked that his bones would be carried back up by his family to Shechem when they finally went there and to bury his bones there. And you can see that at the end of Genesis chapter 50. Well, it's not also, it's not only that the place carries a lot of importance and a little bit later I'm going to show you that that importance runs through into the New Testament as well as an important place. But it's not only the place of that speech that was important, it's what Joshua actually said. And you will see from um, verses 2 to 13 that Joshua went to the trouble of outlining, detailing all the things that God had been faithful in. We just sang the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And here is a message, a speech, where Joshua was, was proclaiming and declaring God's faithfulness to the Israelites. He's gone through their history not only verbally he went through it with them, but it also got written down, it tells us later in the passage, that they recorded it in the book of the law. They remembered it. They said it orally. They recorded it. There's value in remembering our history and being thankful for it. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? We've been in Joshua. This is our third week. We saw in the first week how the Israelites entered Jericho and that they were, um, they'd done a Bradbury. We talked about that, right? That they didn't do it on their own strength. They actually won a victory that they couldn't take credit for. And so to be thankful for that. And we had an encouragement, a challenge that week to think about uh, being thankful, actively thankful for the things we have in our life. And Matt's encouraged us to do that this morning, to look back, to review the year that's gone before we hit New Year's Eve and be thankful for the things God has done for us. Well, this is what Joshua and the Israelites were doing. And I want to encourage us again today to be, as we approach New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, when when all the media is going to be talking about New Year's resolutions, we want to think about how we can be actively thankful for what God's done in our life. And like the Israelites, could even record it. My challenge was for you to keep a diary a, uh, a, a log and there's a couple of my members of, of my family that do that and my wife's doing it again 
where she writes three or four things she can be thankful to the Lord for each day, puts them in a diary. And so if we were to do that at the end of 2020, this new year that's coming, you'd personally have close to a thousand, if not more than a thousand things you've been thankful for to God over 2020. And Bronte was just saying to me before we came, my daughter, that when she's done this, it's given her a different perspective on a day. Even when there's been heavy and hard things happening, the actual exercise of doing that lifts your eyes above the clouds and allows you to be thankful, even though hard things have been happening. So that's going to be my challenge this year, is to keep that diary myself. I haven't done it. I've done something similar in the past that was very helpful for our time in Chile, but my challenge this year is that I'm going to open a book and actually start recording the things I'm thankful for to the Lord. Well, verses 3 to 13 of our passage in Joshua actually shows us that being actively thankful for the things that God has done lets us see more easily that it's what God is doing in our lives, not what we're doing in our lives. Do you remember we talked about that in the first week too? That it was God that did all the work in getting them into Israel? Well, it was the same after Joshua chapter 7 last week when we looked at the problem with sin in the presence of a holy God. You remember after Jericho, the wheels fell off and Achan had took some of the things he wasn't meant to take from the plunder and Israel lost an important battle. What should have been a small and easy battle they lost because he'd done what God had asked them not to do. Yet we learnt from that that our God, even though sin can't remain in his presence, has gone to the trouble through Christ of reconciling us with God. And we talked about once we get a picture of God's holiness, a growing understanding of God's holiness, and yet an awareness of our own sinfulness, the cross of Christ magnifies larger and larger in our life and in our view and in importance for us. So we can be thankful for the cross of Christ, of course. It's what we're most thankful for as Christians. But we can also be thankful for what God is doing in the small things in our life. It's easy to overlook them. Sometimes we think we're doing things in our own strength and we're not recognising the hand of God in certain situations in our life. I want you guys just to quickly look through verses 3 to 13 of that passage. And I want you to see if you can count how many times God says, I did this, not that you, the Israelites, did it. If you think you know the number... In those verses 3 to 13, how many times God said, I did something? I want you to sing it out. Eighteen? Eighteen? 
I think that's very good. My count, I'm not a mathematician. I had 17, but I reckon 18 just because I missed one. Well done. 18 times in just a few verses through the history of Israel, God is saying, I did this. I did this. I did this. It wasn't your bows and arrows. It wasn't your weapons of war. It was what I did. I sent the hornet and drove out the nations before you. So after... That dreadful passage we read last week of the failure at Ai, when Achan did the wrong thing, God restored them. They went back with a renewed focus, a renewed thankfulness for the Lord, a renewed commitment to being his people, that they took Ai and God went before them and and went through all the nations. And that's what we read there, is what's happened between Last week, chapter 7, and now chapter 24. A lot happened. God acted, took them through so that the promise he made to Abraham of giving them land was gradually fulfilled. They weren't now just Abraham with some descendants. They were Abraham who God made into a great nation. They were also a great nation that possessed the land that God had given them. And the rest of Joshua, if you were to read it between... Now, in the new year, you would see that it's a series of God giving them the land. And then after God giving them the land, Joshua dividing that land up between the 12 tribes of Israel. And it just speaks volumes and shouts about the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God keeping his promises. And our worship leader encouraged us this morning about that. God's faithfulness, fulfilling his promises that are eventually fulfilled in Christ. Well, if we then go to verses 14 to 15 of a passage, there's this incredible call after going through the history. I just want to mention too, just quickly, you know how Joshua retold Israel's history and Joshua wrote down that history in the book of the law? You will notice in in verses later on, which I'm not seeing right, uh, 16 to 18, verses 16 to 18, the Israelites actually give an abridged version. Joshua's given the history, but that the Israelites know the history. And they, sh- they say back, orally, by memory, what God has done for them. They give the abridged version, the summary of what Joshua has just said. And I think that's important for us. And that's why it's important for us to keep remembering the things God has done for us. Because that history is our history. As God's people, as Christians, this history that we're reading is our history. It's our history of God being faithful to us. But it's also, we can take it with our relationship with God and record things where God is being faithful to us in our own personal lives because it encourages us and helps us link that back to how God is keeping his promises through the generations. Verses 14 to 15 are the big call for choose who you will serve. Uh, Joshua says... You want to serve the gods of your ancestors or the gods of the cultures around you or the true and living God? That's the call. He doesn't just say, choose who you will serve. As for me and my household, I'm going to serve the Lord. He gives them some options. The first option he gives them, are you going to worship the gods that your ancestors worshipped? Remember, Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which today... A lot of historians think is Iraq. 
Well, God called him out of Iraq and sent him to Palestine. And he did so because his father and his father's people in that land worshipped multiple gods. And God was calling a people out to be his people, a holy people. People only worship, worship the one and true living God. So after telling this history of how God's acted so faithfully in their history, it's kind of like a rhetoric question to say, well, what do you, who are you going to choose to serve? Are you going to choose the, to the gods of your forefathers, Terah, the father of Abraham? Are you going to serve those gods? You're ridiculous after hearing that, that uh, testimony, that history, that, that record of God's faithfulness to their lives. It's a rhetorical question, really. Who, who will you serve? The gods of your ancestors? Surely not. Well, what about the co- gods of the culture around you? The gods of the culture you're in, that you've come to? Because remember, they went to Canaanite, Canaan, and there were, there were people worshipping all sorts of other gods there. I think that's pertinent to us, where most of us have come from some other country far away, and we now find ourselves in Australian culture. What God are we going to serve? Are we going to serve the gods of the culture that we're living in? What are the gods of the culture in Australia? What are the ones that tempt us away to think, to be more focused on those things rather than on serving the Lord? Sometimes we can just sit here and forget that we're within a culture that has an influence on us, that shouts at us its own worldview and its own values. Don't let it seep in. Think about the culture you're living in. I know for me, my family came here from a long way away and they went via another country that was a long way away and their ways of doing things. But Australia has its own culture and way of doing things that keeps morphing over the decades. And I'm sure it's the same for you wherever your ancestors came from they may have worshipped other gods and you obviously being here today aren't looking at going back to those gods but as you serve the Lord and walk with him faithfully don't be tempted by our culture and our culture's worldview here in Australia because the secular culture is far far away from the Christian culture So who are you going to serve? The gods of the ancestors, your ancestors, the gods of the culture around you, Aussie culture, or the true and living God? That's, J- that's, J- 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 that's Joshua's challenge. Are you going to serve the true and living God? And this is where I want to take us back to Shechem. I said there's some importance of that place, not only in the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. And you might remember in John chapter 4, that Jesus, when he was travelling, stopped at Jacob's well and had a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Do you remember the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well and he talked about having true living water, the living water that Jesus can offer? Well, that was Shechem. Had a different name in the New Testament, but it was Shechem. It's where Jacob's well was. It's where Jacob had planted that well all those years ago. And the message there today, that, that, sorry, the message that Jesus gave the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 
the challenge he gave her was about how she was going to worship the Lord, how people were going to worship the Lord now. His call was that people would worship in spirit and in truth. Do you remember that from Joshua chapter 4? Because the Samaritan woman was saying, well, hang on, you Jews say we have to worship God in Jerusalem, in the temple there. But our people, the Samaritans, say we worship here on this mountain at Shechem. There were two mountains at Shechem. And the Samaritans, because they had been divided away from Judah, couldn't go to Jerusalem and worship, so they found their own place to worship. And it was at Shechem. It was one of the mountains there. And the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, you guys say we've got to worship there, but our people say we've got to worship here. Where should we be worshipping? Jesus said, it's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship. It's about the way you worship. It's the attitude you worship with. Worship in spirit and in truth, he said to her. And that brings us back to our key message from Joshua chapter 24 today, from verse 23, yield your hearts to the Lord. That's Joshua's call. Choose who you'll serve. You guys have chosen who you're serving. You're serving the Lord Jesus because of the way he's dealt with our sin that is incompatible with God's holiness. And Christ has come and dealt with that sin. And he calls us to worship and to worship in spirit and truth. And the way to do that is to yield our hearts to the Lord. Well, I wonder what that looks like. If you were to brainstorm what that looks like, I wonder what yielding our hearts to the Lord actually looks like. And I want to confess to you that this has been a tough week for me trying to work that out for myself. Yielding your heart to the Lord is not an easy thing to do. When I think about my own life and what attracts me to take my focus off the Lord and onto something else, there's many things, there's many competing things that would do that. I just want to throw up a quote from Alan Redpath, who's a well-known British evangelist, pastor and author. And he says this, The condition of an enlightened mind is a surrendered heart. And that's, uh, that's quite powerful because if we brainstormed what New Testament verses there are that talk about yielding our heart, I reckon you guys could come up with an easy half dozen just in 30 seconds. I'm sure you, they're coming to your mind right now. But a couple I thought about when I think about that is the condition of an enlightened mind is a surrendered heart. I think about my own story. I think about my own conversion story. James 3.10 says, "Can Praise and cursing cannot come out of the same mouth. It shouldn't be so. Pray. He actually says, praise and cursing does come out of the same mouth amongst you people, but it shouldn't be so. And that was my story. I grew up in the church. My father's a minister, an Anglican minister. And when I was in early high school, I lived two lives. I lived one at church and at home that looked like it should look there. And I lived one at school that looked very different. And cursing came out of my mouth at school like you wouldn't believe. And one day there was a girl at school who also was part of the youth group at church who heard me cursing at her friend (laughs) and tapped me on the shoulder and said, David, are you kidding? I see how you act at church and at youth group and I see 
So you give your dad a kiss at the car as he drops you off at school, and then you come in here and you're doing that. Well, if I'd have lived according to how I did then, the cursing would have come out of my mouth to her as well. But the Holy Spirit stopped that. He tapped me on the shoulder and said, this girl's right. What is going on in your life that you would act so differently? And it just, the Holy Spirit dropped into my mind the question, well, what is Christian living all about? And that began a journey to me to conversion. So what does a heart yielded to God look like? Then for me, it looked like asking the question about what Christian living is all about and deciding to follow the Lord. I needed for myself personally to decide to follow the Lord, not just presume I was a Christian because I grew up in a Christian family. I had a similar challenge to yield my heart to the Lord when God called us to go to Chile to be a to be a missionary, which you guys have consistently over the last 10 years helped us do. Supported us, faithfully praying for us, faithfully helping us do it financially. Well, back then when I was struggling to give up my career, because that's what was one of the big challenges I had, should I let go of a career I have that provides well for my family and put myself on this unknown course, this unguaranteed course, well, Matthew 6, 25, 34 spoke into that about not being worried about those things. Just seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I had to yield my heart to that. And it's when I yielded my heart to that that I was able to actually write a resignation letter and hand it in at work. That was a hard thing to do but the Lord helped me do it as I yielded my heart to him. And remember I told you about the car accident Bronte and I were in in Chile a couple of weeks ago and I had to go to the police station? Again, that was a good example of where I had to yield my heart to the Lord. I won't retell that story because you know it from there. But um, Romans 8.28, God works all things for good for those who love and serve him. I needed to allow that to happen in that car accident for God to show me how he was working all things for good, even when you have someone run up the back of you in a car accident. Well, I want to say to you, I've struggled this week because I do struggle sometimes to set my mind on things above where moth and rust cannot come in and thieves can't break in and steal. But I've been struggling when I think about wanting to have my family will tell this, tell you this story, how much time I've been spending looking at old historic cars on carsales.com. <laughs> and the reason that's come up is because I have an old 99 Toyota Corolla that I realised my niece, who was born in 1999, could have one day when we're finished with it and she'd have a car made in her year of birth. And suddenly it sent me on this silly track of going, oh, I wonder what sort of car I'd have if I had a car that was made in 1966. Well, I'll let you go home and look on carsales.com and what's out there. <laughs> but this has been a, been a good week for me to be thinking about this passage because I've got to ask myself, is my heart yielded to the Lord in circumstances like this? Am I seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Or am I letting myself get caught up in the worries of the world? Well, I want to encourage you to think about that too as you approach a new year. Are you going to yield your heart to the Lord? We all have to do it continually. There's always a challenge for us. As we enter 2020, are we going to yield our hearts to the Lord? 
If you're struggling like me, you can see areas in your life where you're struggling with, like I can. And that's just only one, guys. I haven't shared with you all the areas I struggle with. But I want to encourage you with a couple of more quotes as you think about doing that in 2020. Dwight L. Moody was a great American evangelist of the 19th century. And he said, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. How good is that? He can do more with it than you can. So if you're struggling to yield your heart to the Lord in an area, follow Moody's advice. Let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Well, it's true and it's worth doing. And there's a, uh, there were a couple of great missionaries from America to Ecuador in South America, a country just north of where we were, uh, Elizabeth Elliott and her husband Jim. Uh, they were missionaries to Ecuador and her husband Jim uh, was speared to death along with three of his other colleagues by tribesmen in Ecuador back in 1955. And this is what Elizabeth Elliot said, or she wrote in a book afterwards, if my life is surrendered to God, all is well. Let me not grab it back as though it were in peril in his hand, but would be safer in mine. And that's the temptation. And that's why we have to come every day to yield our hearts to the Lord, is because there's always that temptation to grab it back, because we're not quite sure God's got it all. And we think we can do a better job of it if we're in control. So a couple of great quotes. What I want to ask you to do is pray for me as I continue to struggle to yield my heart to the Lord. But pray for each other here at the E-Free Church. Pray for each other that you would be yielding your hearts to the Lord, not over just 2020, but in all the years to come. Why don't we pray now? Heavenly Father, thank you for this great speech that Joshua gave at Shechem. Thank you for the historical importance of the place that just underlined and accentuated the message that he was challenging them with, which was to yield their hearts to the Lord. As we're challenged by the same message this morning, Father, and you've touched our consciousness, our minds, our hearts on the things we're struggling to yield to you, I pray, Father, that we'd be in deep prayer for each other and that we would support each other in those struggles and that you would help us to truly yield our hearts to you. Bring to us memory verses that would help us in each of those situations and by the power of your spirit, enable us, enable us to let you have our life because we know you can do more with it than we can. In Jesus' name, amen.